0: We are in Acts chapter 7 today, if you want to turn there, Acts chapter 7. I tried to wrap up Acts 7 today, because it would have been a very fitting Sunday to wrap it up on, because at the end of Acts 7, we have the martyrdom of Stephen, and this is obviously the Sunday we think about and pray about the persecuted believers, but I think if you're here every Sunday, I think we pray for them every Sunday, so next week we'll be just as timely Stephen's sermon though for me is just too rich and there's too much to unpack if we want to do it justice and so we're going to cover verses 38 through 53 today that will be plenty for us but since we're picking up in the middle of Stephen's message I need to bring you up to speed by way of reminder firstly Stephen was disputed with in a synagogue And that escalated to charges being brought up against him, in which Stephen is then dragged to the high priest, basically to the party that murdered Jesus and that have been persecuting the disciples so far in Acts. And those charges have to do with, one, speaking against the temple, and secondly, speaking against the law. And so last week I began to walk you through Stephen's defense basically the sermon or testimony that he gave of the entire Jewish history to reveal that Stephen is really answering the charges that are against him by proving it from Jewish history. So in other words, he's saying, well, if the temple is so important and the law is so important, how is it that God covenanted with Gentiles, in other words, non-Jews, Like Abram, the temple or the law wasn't around yet. And neither was Abram even near Israel. Neither did he ever set foot in Israel. But it was with him that God said, hey, I promise to bless you with many descendants. Stephen is coloring his entire message to foreshadow Jesus. And so he's proving from Israel's history that that God has a track record of working with people that just don't fit that prim and proper bill, right? So Israel also has a history of rejecting God's anointed ones, just as they are about or have rejected Jesus. We remember Joseph is rejected by his brothers and sold into slavery, only to turn around, Joseph does, and he saves his brothers and all of Israel from famine by being a ruler in pagan Egypt. No law there. No temple, just God's salvation. We remember Moses is rejected by his kinsmen after he admittedly murdered an Egyptian that was bothering them. So he went out into the desert, but then he comes back and he saves the very kinsmen who rejected him. Think of Moses. I called him a little bit of a half-breed Israelite. He came up in the pagan courts of Egypt, but he saved God's people before there was the law and before there was the temple. So now Stephen's speech is coming to a point, and I illustrate it this way. I imagine his speech is almost like a limp arm that's slowly rising and strengthening to, to finally fix a pointed finger on his accused hearers that will climax in 7 verse 51. But first we need to start in Acts 7, 38. So if you're able to stand, I invite you to, in honor of hearing God's word as we pick up right after Stephen reminds his hearers that Moses predicted the coming of a prophet like him, that's Jesus. So Acts chapter 7, verse 38. This is the one, that is Moses, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us from the land of Egypt, we do not know what became of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned them away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring me did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Let's pray. Father, uh, sometimes I'm guilty of coming to your word and all I want are just practical tidbits on living. But here you are, here's your word, and you fill it with lots of stories that we have to study and understand and unpack. And I believe you didn't hand us an accident when you gave us the Bible, but you gave us these stories so we would understand and unpack. And in doing so, Father, I pray that your spirit would reveal to us your word for us today, that through our studying and time together, we would walk away knowing more about you, finding the answers you want to give us for the conditions we bring to you, and that we would love and serve you more because of it and love and serve others well because of it. Father, give us open ears and open hearts. Help us not to be stiff-necked. Help us not to resist your Holy Spirit. We pray against the enemy, and we ask that you would speak and not I. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. How many of you... You just cannot, for the life of you, identify with Paul in Romans chapter 7. <laughs> if you don't know what I'm talking about, let me jog your memories. Paul laments in Romans 7 and he says things like, Wretched man that I am, I know what's right, but I just can't do it. Or, uh, I know what's wrong, but I can't help doing that. I, don't, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I should do. And how many of you, that's just foreign talk. You're like, where is Paul even coming from? I'm perfect. I got this down. I never struggle with sinning. Paul just needs to come back to planet Earth. And I think we're all there. That was sarcasm, if you couldn't tell. Or maybe we have all been there, if we're honest with ourselves. Either that or apparently the Apostle Paul and your pastor Kevin live in an unholy vacuum. What's interesting and often missed, though, when people say things like, yes, Romans chapter 7, that's my life verse. (laughs) It's always good to keep on reading and see what happens when the subject changes or when the topic is concluded. At the end of Romans 7 and going into chapter 8, Paul writes, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul knows not only victory through Jesus' death and resurrection and the likes of Jesus pays my sin and Jesus becomes my sin and substitute, But also, notice the words, Paul says, we now walk according to the Spirit. That is an active, ever-growing holiness and sanctification to hopefully where Paul was able to say someday, and you and I someday, hopefully we catch greater glimpses as we go about our Christian walk, where we say, hey, I prayed today, I I resisted temptation today. I didn't respond in my usual attitude when Kevin preached at me. (laughs) I mean, maybe I'm living a little bit more in the righteousness of Jesus. Maybe I'm walking by His Spirit. Do you hear that? I showed self-control today. That's actually a fruit of the Spirit. Does that make sense? So Romans 7 is a struggle that is overcomable. I just made that word up. A struggle that's overcomable. Well, why do I bring all this up? I find a lot of irony in this first part of Stephen's message that we're looking at today. He says, this is the one, again, Moses, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. If you didn't catch it, here is Moses, finally at the top of Mount Sinai, finally receiving the law. Now again, Stephen is charged with thinking too little of the law or preaching against the law. And so here's Moses having a one-on-one encounter with the holy God of Israel, receiving on tablets forged by the hand of God the Ten Commandments Israel will receive. And what is happening at the very same moment right down the holy mountain? Where's Moses at? I don't know. Hey, Aaron, can we get some idols made up in here? (laughs) When we were in Egypt, they had gods to pray to for everything, and we don't have any gods. So say the people who just witnessed God pour out ten plagues against Egypt and rip open the seas for them to cross over on dry land and then let those seas crash down over really the fiercest and best army on planet earth at the time. They know all of that, but maybe they're about to do what they shouldn't do and not do what they should do. If that's as if Stephen is saying, you say I speak against the law, look at these guys when the law was formed if it's so holy, big, and preeminent, and life-giving, if it, is, if it is the way to heaven, if it is the way to life with God, why is it at the very moment that Moses receives it, the entirety of God's covenant people are blaspheming it right down the hill? Do you hear that? Verse 39, Our fathers refused to obey Him. So there is the rejected leader, the rejected deliverer motif again and instead of going with God's appointed leader they thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt so again friend Stephen is working to the point that the very people he's talking to have refused to obey God's appointed leader Jesus and in their hearts they are turned to the world even though they think they have the cornerstone on holiness being gatekeepers of the law and of the temple. So I want you to do this for me if you have a Bible or if you have a good memory and you like to circle and highlight and underline or if you just have a good memory, keep this in mind. Underline or whatever the works of their hands there in verse 41. The works of their hands. And remember, that is in connection to the idols they made. The works of their hands. We'll come back to that. So again, I brought up the picture at the beginning, figuratively, that Stephen's arm is beginning to straighten as he's going to make some more pointed warnings to his hearers. So he reminds them of the captivity and the exile here next in 42 and 43. He says, But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So Stephen is actually quoting Amos chapter 5, verses 25 to 27 here. And in it, Amos actually puts at the very end, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. But by this time in history, Stephen's time, Babylon had become a generic term for judgment because it was such a big deal in the Jewish people's mind. So a general illustration contemporarily is this, the word hell. (laughs) Some unwholesome, indecent sayings are go to hell (laughs) or there will be hell to pay. And what is meant, people really don't even think about this, is you deserve judgment, (laughs) right? Well, Babylon was used generically like that, probably not as indecently, but in the Jewish mind, Babylon was a catch-all phrase that just meant very bad judgment. Does that make sense? And so what Stephen is saying is that the idolatry at the very origins of the same time that the law was handed down, since it was entertained, it ultimately led to Babylon, the ultimate judgment. When God's people started worshipping the host of heaven, that is the stars and the sun and the pagan deities that claimed to be in charge of these things, God in essence said to Babylon, with it, if you catch my illustration. So do as you please. Here's the consequences. And Stephen is in essence saying, do you want the law? Are you holy enough for it? (laughs) Or do you wrestle like our forefathers did with idolatry? And we're not just talking about idolatry, oh look, a golden calf, but idolatry of the heart, right? If my God is recognition and power, I'm going to bring offerings to my altars that give me recognition and power. If my God is food and comfort, I will make sacrifices at the temple of the fridge and the barbecue, and the sacrifices will be my own health. But that's okay, because I'm worshiping the God of food. And to reject Jesus and his covenant is to invite what the forefathers invited by rejecting Moses and treating his law lightly. And that's just, just as what the forefathers did in Babylon came, so too does Jesus' contemporaries do and Rome's going to come. Do you hear that? And so after Stephen gave them that warning, he returns to the history right after Moses. And he talks about the conquest under Joshua and the kingdom of Israel, but his focus is going to be answering that charge about the temple now. So you noticed he just talked about the law again and how it was blasphemed at its origins, but now he's going to talk about the temple. And namely, really, what does God think about his need for a temple? We read in verses 44 through 50, he says, "...our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? So Advent season is coming and you're like, let's celebrate Thanksgiving first, Kevin. And let's. But I'm going to just give you a frame of reference. In the Advent story, there is this father of John the Baptist, a guy named Zechariah. And he gets to go to the temple. This is a big deal. Luke chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 says, Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And if you know your story, that's where he's told by an angel. You're going to have John, and that's where he's muted because he questions the angel. There were apparently 18,000 divisions and about 750 men in each division. And each division would travel to Jerusalem for one week, two times a year, to do ministry at the temple. All 750 priests would cast lots, or if you don't understand, roll dice, or pick the big straw, whatever illustration you need, to see who gets to go into the temple, and then throw some incense on some coals, say a prayer, and then they leave, and they never ever get to do that ever again. That was it. This was your one time in your whole life in the temple. Why is this a big deal? Because the Jews believed God's presence or his Shekinah was only manifested in one place on planet Earth. The temple. So Stephen is in essence saying, it's interesting how much stock we put in the temple. When consider its predecessor, Moses made it. It's a traveling tent in the wilderness. And the wilderness, if you did not know, was not Israel or Jerusalem. And though the temple in Stephen's day was big and glorious, it too was made or commissioned by King Herod. And Moses made the traveling one in the wilderness. So if you recall, we had 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 17 read to us, and we always seem to hear that at the prospect of the temple even being built, if I could generalize it, I feel like God is saying, Okay, it's funny that you think you could build a house for the creator of the entire universe, but go for it. Gwyn read for us what God said to David when he broached the idea of building a house for him. But we hear in Stephen's speech that Solomon built a house for him, and then Stephen reminds his hearers a very pointed reminder, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. Now I want you to circle, underline, highlight, whatever you do with phrases, made by hands. We'll come back to that in a minute. But we move on as the prophet, and this time he's quoting Isaiah, says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? So we kind of hear the irony here, don't you? You're going to build me a house, says God. Will it be big enough? Because while I'm you know, residing in heaven, the home I built for myself, I'm resting your feet on your entire planet. Isaiah even takes it further. Now this is interesting, if you don't know this. Stephen lived in a day where there were not even chapters or verses in his Bible. And so for him to bring up the beginning of Isaiah 66, but he didn't cite any more of it than he did, I wonder if he's hoping that the Pharisees will call to mind what Isaiah did say. So again, we go to Isaiah 66. This is what Stephen told them in verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Now hear how Isaiah continues. We go to verse 3, and Isaiah says, or actually the continue in verse 2, he says, but this is the one to whom I will look. So, this is God's way of saying in a cute way, probably not in a 100% literal way, because God cannot be served by human hands, but he says, if you want to turn my head, if you want to catch my attention, he says, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word, that, is how you get God's attention. That is the essence of what Stephen is saying in his entire argument. Temple aside, the law aside, oh look, you mighty leaders of the temple and the Jewish religion, all of your stuff means nothing to God. Here's what he wants. Humility, contrite in spirit, one who trembles at his word. But then Isaiah takes it further, and I just got to believe that this is really getting his hearers' minds, if they're thinking about this. Because Isaiah is talking about the New Covenant, talking about what God will think of sacrifices in the New Covenant. He says in verse 3, One who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. The law says not to do that. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a gain offering like one who offers pig's blood. (laughs) Jews do not like pigs. It's an unclean animal. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. God does not like that. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. These are all images of the sacrificial system. And God is saying, they've done away with me, and they put their faith and hope in a cult. And so now I want to thread the needle of those two phrases, if you underlined or circled or highlighted. Because in 41... Stephen said it was in the wilderness that Israel was rejoicing in the works of their hands. In other words, worshiping the golden calf. And then in verse 48, Stephen says that the temple is a house made by hands and how God cannot be contained there. So in essence, the temple has become the golden calf. Do you hear that? See, God is in essence saying they've made the way that I set things up into their God. And they think that if they just do these things... They'll be good when I, God, am not looking for the system. I'm looking for the heart. Do you hear that? Is it, is it so bad, it is so bad that the priests can go through the motions and do all the, quote, right things, but the whole system, the law, the temple, the sacrifices make God throw up because he can't stand the hypocrisy. We finish Isaiah's indictment here. He says, I will also choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. So that's exactly what's playing out with Jesus and will play out with Stephen, because here is Stephen giving them, arguably in my mind, one of the best sermons in the book of Acts, just laying out how Jesus fits into all of this so clearly, And really, it's God calling out, but he's getting no answer. It's God speaking, but they're not listening. In fact, it's interesting, whenever they finally moved to stone Stephen, we read in verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. (laughs) Don't tell us anymore. And they rushed together at him. When I spoke, they did not listen, says God in Isaiah. They're going to go with their law, their system, their temple, when God has always operated freely outside of those things. Well, with calling to mind Isaiah 66, now Stephen's arm is just straight out in front of him. The the finger is pointed. Got those two mixed up. And we now hear what's been building. Stephen says, You stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. What of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. I don't know if we fully grasp or appreciate the magnitude of this insult. It's insulting and offensive when heard by Stephen's hearers, but it's meant to convict because it's true. I mean, these are the highest authorities of the Jewish religion. No one ever comes to their house and says, "Can I speak to someone in charge? Because they would answer, we're as high as it gets. And they're hearing from Stephen. He's not even one of the twelve. Just little deacon Stephen, uncircumcised in heart and ears uncircumcised again in the Jewish mindset, the greatest insult you could hear for Christians that is hearing, you hellbound hypocrite who really isn't saved. <laughs> wow. They're covenant breakers. They're not abiding by the law. They're not faithful before God. They're not part of the holy people. The circumcision they have physically is representative of nothing spiritually, nothing realistically in their lives. And they're stiff-necked, They're like a stubborn ox who's broadening his shoulders, not wanting to receive the yoke for its neck. They always resist the Holy Spirit. And then there is this shift from the entire sermon that Stephen has been saying, because he says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Your fathers, not our fathers. He used to say our fathers. Well, naturally... Religious people look to the scriptures and say, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, Solomon, nice people like me, if I was in their time. <laughs> I'd be like them. I would like them. But Stephen says, let me show you where I see you in the scriptures. You're Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery. You're the whiny Israelites holding up the promised land and ticking off Moses. You're the corrupt fake prophets who were saying, don't listen to Jeremiah. Don't listen to Isaiah. We're all fine. Don't listen to them. God's not angry at us. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So here is the lineage, says Stephen. Just like in our past, God anointed after God's anointed being rejected by their own brothers. Here is Jesus, the epitome of God's anointed. And here is God's anointed again being rejected by you, the rejecters. And then to top it off, Stephen says, again, I cannot overstate this, the people who do justice utilizing the very law, the authorities on the Bible in our day and age, we're talking about people who know Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic better than the authors of the Bible themselves. Stephen says to them, you who received the law delivered by angels and did not keep it. So let me put it to you this way. Farmers, don't you love it when people who've never farmed tell you, well, here's how you should farm. (laughs) Are you a little mildly peeved? The nerve you have on steroids is what these religious people are feeling. Who is this Stephen guy, anyway, telling us, the keepers, protectors, defenders, and teachers of the law to tell us that we've missed the most obvious boat. We've missed the Messiah. We see why in the next verses that they only show us Stephen's death by the hands of these offended ones. But we're not ending on that today. Rather, today, I need to wrap all of this up, and it's simply this obvious. Stephen is, of course, right. (laughs) He is about to die for what he said, but he's right. A few verses to tie this together. First, read here in John 1.14, and I used Young's literal translation because it has a weird word that's the key word, and that is, and the Word became flesh and did tabernacle among us, and we beheld His glory, glory of an only begotten Father full of grace and truth. We don't need the temple. We don't build houses for God because God Himself came to earth. Jesus is the temple. He did say, you destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. Because we don't go to the temple in Israel to find the presence of God, we go to Jesus. And instead of resisting the Holy Spirit like the religious people, we receive the Holy Spirit. And instead of working towards our own righteousness, we become the righteousness of Christ. And as Jesus, our temple, and as people trekked to the temple to abide in the temple to be near the presence of God... So we abide in our temple, Christ. And by abiding in our temple, we remain clean. But first, we are declared clean by Jesus. I love what he says in John 15, verse 3. He says, already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Do you hear that? God declared us guilty through the law. And God, through Jesus, declares us clean. You need to hear this. It's Romans 8 1 all over again. There is therefore no longer any condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Because where religious people say, do this, keep this law, strive, work hard, be perfect, be holy, Jesus says, you're clean. Jesus is God. And if he says you're clean, guess what? You're clean. Hear that again, guys. Jesus is God, and if He says you're clean, you're clean. I would say He's the authority on these matters. I don't know about you, so I'll just pick on me. But I'm like, I'm supposed to be a husband, but I fail sometimes. And I'm supposed to be a dad, but I'm a lousy example. and I'm a pastor, but I sin. And God comes along and says, you're clean. You're clean. Don't hear me wrong. There are some stronger implications. It's not that I have a license to be a lousy husband, dad, or pastor But Jesus, our temple, is a temple open 24-7 for all sorts of people. And he says, continuing in the same passage, verse 4, "...abide in me," seems like we're saying that, "...and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing." Isn't that comforting? Isn't that restful? Because that means we don't need to open up the book of the law and get a checkbook out and keep tabs and work my way to righteousness. But rather it means God became flesh and tabernacles. He dwells with us. In fact, He dwells within us. And it means my righteousness is the righteousness of God in me. That's what Jesus Himself, and that's, through his apostles, and through his Stephen, has invited the religious people over and over and over to. And that's what the Spirit invites you to today. Amen. Amen? Let's pray. Father, again, I'm fascinated that you've been writing a story since the world began. And everything in the Scriptures, I say it all the time, but I'm still wowed by it, that everything points to you. Father, we saw a picture at the beginning that the very tabernacle that existed in God's people was in the shape of a cross on the wilderness of Israel. Father, you are our temple. You are where we meet with God. There's only one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for dying for our sins that you became the sacrifice so no longer any sacrifices would need to be made. We thank you that... We can walk by the Spirit, that we don't need to strive to keep a law we can't measure up to, but rather, in Jesus Christ, your Spirit can lead us to be righteous like you are. Thank you that you forgive 70 times 7. Thank you that even though we all struggle sometimes in Romans 7, that there is hope in Romans 8. So help us, Father, to be more like your Son Jesus. Help us to reach people with this message of hope found in you. Help us to receive your Holy Spirit and not resist it. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.